Well, how's it going, everybody? Here we are on week three of Holy Week in our build up to Easter, our 40 day Lent preparation, right in the middle of that at the moment. And I'm talking to you today uh, not about Palm Sunday, week one, which is the uh, of Holy Week, the first day of Jesus in Holy Week, not about Palm Sunday, not about clearing the temple, that was last week, but today we're talking about Jesus cursing the fig tree. And so, obviously, I've been away on sort of like an extended leave vacation for three months. I come back and the first two messages I preach to you are Jesus clearing the temple and Jesus cursing a fig tree. So I sort of feel for the temple and the fig tree and I feel for you receiving what might be perceived as negative sermons. But we're going to find out what it was that Jesus was doing in the middle of these moments in his ministry. So the Bible says in Mark chapter 11 through 12, uh, excuse me, 11, 12 through 15, and then 20 through 25. And then again in Matthew 21, 18 to 22. The Bible says this, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. That's such a great scripture. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. In other words, a fig tree um, in bloom. That's the season of fruitfulness. We can talk about businesses. We don't talk about this, but we certainly can. And it's a phrase that's used historically. You might talk about a business that's in leaf. And so it's, it's blooming. There should be fruit and it's success in the business. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found that there was nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may you never, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree, verse 20. Sorry, I've skipped a few verses there, verse 20, if you're reading in your scriptures. They saw the, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, throw yourself in the sea and it does not doubt in their heart, but believes that they will see um, uh, that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Matthew 21, verse 18 through 22, that was Mark. Matthew says, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, You may never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Father, we pray that you would speak to us today. Bless us, move in this place, uh, in our online campus, no matter where anyone's watching, in their home, uh, on a mobile phone, on a tablet, whatever device it might be. Speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The phrase one-two punch is a boxing phrase where you uh, the goal is to beat your opponent by punching them and really making their brain slam against their skull so hard that they become concussed and get knocked out. One strategy is to throw combinations. You can pepper someone with a jab, 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 and you might throw a, um, a two-punch combo. You might go jab, uppercut, jab, overhand right. 
A one-two punch is a phrase from boxing that has transcended the sport. We often talk about a one-two punch, and it might be in business. We're going to talk about it today in the scriptures. It might be in sport. A one-two punch is a common combination that's used even outside of the context of boxing, talking about two things working in tandem. The second and third day of Holy Week here that we read about is a, is a great messianic one-two punch of epic length proportions. Um, Jesus uh, clears the temple and curses the fig tree. He's walking, and even we read in the book of Mark that he saw the fig tree, cursed it, cleared the temple, then came back to the fig tree. So chronologically, and from Mark's perspective, he cursed the fig tree, went to the temple, came back, and then they saw that it was withered. Matthew, it goes chronologically, temple, then tree. We have the triumphal entry where he came in on a donkey. They were screaming and shouting and singing phrases like, Hosanna, 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 the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. He humbly received a royal welcome. Hosanna, the phrase is derived in the Hebrew as an expression of praise and adoration. The son of David is derived in the Hebrew as an exclamation of joy, but announcing that he's the Messiah. They recognize Jesus as that. Many in his ministry up until that point had not recognized him. Many after didn't and still don't recognize Jesus as that great prophesied Jewish Messiah. But to call him Hosanna, son of David, the people who are present certainly did. The crowd acknowledged his royal and messianic status to save and deliver his people. Chronologically, as I say, straight after that, in the book of Matthew, we see that he then curses this tree. The fig tree was an actual tree. We believe that this actually happened, that there was an actual tree that actually had leaves but no fruit, was barren, and we believe that Jesus cursed it and it withered before their eyes. But obviously the fig tree for us must mean more than just being a tree. What does it mean for us? What is the symbolism of what's taking place? The olive tree in the scriptures, and even beyond that, but starting there represents peace and reconciliation. The vineyard represents religion. The vine in John 15 represents Jesus. Here, we believe that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel, God's people. And in believing so, we can extrapolate that. That also might even mean us, that he's speaking to us like he was speaking to the nation. A symbol of Israel's spiritual barrenness, unfortunately, is what's taking place in this story. And I guess a sense of impending judgment as a result of the fact that they were barren, not because of circumstances, but maybe because of their own free will. In Jeremiah, God compares Judah to a fig tree that he will destroy because of their disobedience. So Jesus sees a fig tree here that is covered in leaves and is fruitless, but is actually barren. And then he curses it. Verse, uh, in Mark chapter 11 and verse 24, 22, it says, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I say to you, if anyone says to this mountain, straight after the tree, now he's talking about a mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Theologians believe that this reference here, coming from pivoting from the tree, which is Israel, to this mountain, actually believe that Jesus was talking about the temple mount, the temple that was on the mountain, up high, and that being thrown into the sea. So we've got a sense of impending doom and judgment because of Israel's barrenness or disobedience, and this picture of the temple being thrown into the sea. To call this a shot across the bow, I guess today is an understatement. 
He's challenging and warning and exhorting Israel to change their ways. Remembering, of course, that the very next thing that he does here is clear, clear the temple. The exhortation and encouragement and challenge continued for two days straight. His issue is that Israel had an out of faith, but not a true and genuine faith. Therefore, there was no true fruitfulness. That they had the trappings of religion, but no genuine inner transformation. But Jesus' whole mission was, and still is today, to concern himself with inner authenticity, not with outer trappings. Faith in Jesus and a relationship with Jesus are more important than outer expressions of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. By grace, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, if you take a note, write this down. Relationship is more important than religion. More to the point, relationship is the goal of religion. Relationship, friends, is not a means to an end. When it comes to our, our relationship with God, relationship is the end. The fig tree is Israel, and I call what's happened here barrenness, but I call it negligent barrenness. A barrenness brought about by our own free will or our own decision making. Compared in the scriptures, we read a lot about the barren womb, don't we? And Jesus didn't curse a barren womb. We don't see times in the scriptures, Old or New Testament, where the barren womb is cursed like this fig tree because the barren womb is out of our control. And so he heals her. The Bible says here in Galatians 4, 27, which is a throwback to Isaiah 54, verse 1, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. It's out of her control, so he heals her. But the barren nation is in their control, and so he challenges him. And this is to a direct correlation to us. We too are challenged, exhorted, encouraged in our relationship with Jesus too. The nation of Israel was uh, on a long journey from Abraham through the law, judges, kings, the prophets. Really, we call that the law and the prophets, all the way through to Jesus, the prophesied one, the sent one of the Father. They had been saved, shepherded, raised as God's people. They had spent many, many years being um, raised up and being challenged to maintain their commitment to God, to Yahweh. Where it lands for us is that Israel had become more concerned about outer appearance than inner authenticity. Outer change versus inner transformation was the challenge that Jesus was addressing. Looking like faith rather than actually having faith. Looking good rather than doing good. Galatians 2 verse 16 says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And going on in verse 21, Do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In other words, inner transformation, life change, and, and I guess at the end of the day, salvation, the sanctification that then follows, comes through the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, not by works of our own. Within Israel, though, a complacency had been brewing, a new lifestyle had been brewing, where activities had replaced God, where stuff had replaced His presence, where procedure had become a priority over His presence. 
The centerpiece of our faith should always be Christ. Israel's activity and practices had become their own God, their new idol, so to speak. So I guess the question is, what does this mean for us? If Jesus saw the tree and wanted to challenge the nation of Israel for their barrenness and their lack of inner authenticity and relationship with God, but the sense of distance that they had created through their own behavior and decisions and actions, then what does it mean for us today? Isaiah 64 verse 6 says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. All of us have become like one who is unclean. Our righteousness, our righteous acts are like filthy rags, the Bible says. Our best practices, our best actions, our best rhythms, our best human behavior is exactly what the Bible calls it. Filthy rags. The lesson of the fig tree is this. If we remain like this, we end up in ruins. Fruitless, barren, and cast into the sea. At the moment, I stand here today delivering this message with an injured left leg. My left quad, one of those four quad muscles, is injured. It's been pulled. It's sore. On Tuesday, two days ago, I had needling with electrotherapy where they send electric pulses. I had um, cupping. I had this um, horrible like uh, boomerang-shaped metal tool, you know, sort of like rubbed all over the, the quad, very, very sore. And uh, yeah, the cupping, uh, and then and one other thing, and it was um, tremendously sore, like it was really, really painful. And as a result of that injury, um, I'm not running at the moment, so I'm kind of frustrated at that. But that's life; it happens. I raised that because I want you to know that for the last three months, while I was running in the sunshine in New Zealand, I was injury-free from December through to the start of March. I ran freely and without issues. But the thing that I did or didn't do was I didn't do any maintenance. I didn't do any injury prevention. Very little stretching, very little rolling, very little physio massage therapy. My observation is this today. That's about as long as I can go before getting injured. I haven't run now for three weeks because of negligence for three months. I think this is also a reflection of my soul or it can be certainly correlated to the soul. How long can someone go without rhythms and spiritual practices without crashing? How long can we be negligent and make distance ourselves from God despite maybe doing the things that look like we have a faith without on the inside eroding our soul and having no faith at all? Or but yet, how long can we go without practices that lead us to Christ, that are filled with Him? And Jesus' ultimate point is that we can't go very long without journeying away from Him in our walk with him. Mark chapter 2 talks about the Sabbath. In verse 23, it says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. So we've got a fig tree. We've got a mountain. We've got another illustration here with Jesus in the grain fields. He's going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some of the heads of grains. And the Pharisees said to them, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read that David and his companions were hungry, and when they were in need in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, they entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some of his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. 
what Jesus is saying here is this. Man was created first and then Sabbath as a tool for man. That man is above and the Sabbath is subservient to man. The Sabbath was made for man and not man was made for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was created for man and is a servant to him. It is a tool in his hands. If you take a notes, write this down. The rules are valuable guidelines for us, but Jesus is the ultimate goal. He's Lord even of the Sabbath. God created for us many helpful tools, but that's all they are. In Brooklyn, there is a large portion of Hasidic Jews which still um, observe the kosher laws. Uh, Sabbath and rest, um, the food they eat, what they wear, the things that they do, the way that they run their weekly rhythms. And in Brooklyn, um, often you'll see Hasidic Jews do specific things. And, and I read once about a friend who was in an elevator in a lift going up and down, probably going down in his apartment. And often you'll see, um, because there are Jews in his neighborhood, Hasidic Jews, and they'll be there. But if it's, a, if it's on a Sabbath, which is their Friday afternoon through Saturday afternoon, um, uh, sundown both days, they won't press the button to go up or down in the lift. They'll wait for you to do it because they can't lift a hand on, a, on the Sabbath. I guess my point is that sometimes um, we can put so much value on the rules and the laws that they, they can govern us. There's something so simple as lifting a hand um, is not something that this group of people do as they follow these rules that we're talking about today. And Jesus came, I think, to say, hey, let's not get too carried away and follow too strongly the rules that I put in place. At the end of the day, the main purpose of these, the main, the main purpose and the priority of, of, this, of these rules and observations, these processes, is Jesus. The purpose can get lost in the process. Think about family gatherings. The goal at family gatherings is to connect, but we can get lost in the preparation. For us, it's important to remember that the law, the Bible, spiritual practices like Sabbath and worship, these are tools. All of our energies and conduit, they're conduits, they're not the focus. They are something that we use to get to our main goal and priority and purpose, which is Christ. Um, the Enneagram has been a real um, powerful tool, you know, and a funny conversation over at dinner parties. Um, do, do you know anyone that's an Enneagram obsessed person? They just love it. You know, that's all they talk about. It's a brilliant tool. But wow, it can become an obsession for some people. The purpose of the Enneagram is to better understand yourself and better understand people. A powerful pastoral tool, a powerful relational tool, a powerful occupational tool. That the Enneagram is used for the purpose of human behavior and human understanding. But sometimes the Enneagram can become so much more powerful and more significant than people itself. And people become subservient to that. And I'll talk with some people and Enneagram is the answer to everything. Oh, he's this and that and the other thing. And I wonder sometimes, man, have we lost the point that the point of these tools is to better understand ourselves, to love ourselves, understand, to acknowledge ourselves and to understand others. But we forget that the goal of it is people, understanding, empathy, knowledge. The tool itself should not be elevated so high. For us, being in church is not the goal. Having a relationship with Jesus is the goal. Church will help us. Loving my neighbor is the goal. Being the best Christian I can be, the best follower of Christ I can be. Enneagram will help me achieve that goal. But it's not the goal. Think about a surgeon. I imagine many of the doctors, surgeons that are in our church, 
And I imagine them being in a surgery and having all their tools lined up, the scalpels and all of their sanitized items lined up and they go to use those. Imagine if during that process afterwards, a successful operation has taken place and the tools call a press conference because they want to gloat about the successful surgery that they've just performed. We would all be laughing because they're just a tool in the hand of a skilled and trained doctor and an animate object. We too are just a tool in the hand of God. But these practices and rhythms that we have are tools in the hands of his people to help us better have relationship with him. And Jesus said, Israel, you have been following and using the tools and following the processes and the procedures, but you are still distant because there's no inner authenticity. You were just doing the things without valuing relationship with me. For us, reading our Bible is not the goal. Having relationship with Jesus is the goal. Think about the purpose of riverbanks. Without riverbanks, a river is a swamp, isn't it? Without riverbanks, a river is a wetland. Without riverbanks, a, a river doesn't, doesn't move with great force through a valley, down from a mountain and off to the sea. Riverbanks, they contain the river. They're powerful like a hose when you wash your car or sprinkle your garden in the summertime. The riverbank is crucial, but it is not the main feature. The goal of the riverbank is to capture the flow of water. The beauty of the river is the water and the life that it generates and not the banks that hold it in. Let's thank God for the riverbanks, for the tools, for something that generates power and can get the water moving in the right direction. Let's thank Him for the practices, the spiritual rhythms, but let's make sure that the ultimate focus of the riverbank is the water. Riverbanks should push us in the right direction, but if they don't, they're not fulfilling their purpose. We should critique, change, and adjust the riverbanks at all times, but we should not lose sight of the water. Jesus, his point was clear that Israel had lost sight of the goal, their ultimate goal, which was the Messiah, which was Jesus, which was the water of life himself, that when he was sitting on that well, talking to a woman, the well of life, was sitting on the well of Jacob, that he is someone who has the river of life flowing from him. And we have that when we follow him. But if we focus on the external doings and not the inner transformation, not the inner authenticity, we are lost and cast into the sea and a withered fig tree. There's two words I want to teach you today. If you don't already understand these words, I'll do my best to explain them. They're simple words. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy which is theology or our message of Christ, and orthopraxy, which is the practices of that message. The message and the practices. The practices had become a new focus that were taken away from Christ and from the church and from transformation in their time. A good example these days, I think, is evangelism. The message of evangelism is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for us at Easter and rose again and now sits at the right hand of the Father and bought us forgiveness for our sin. And now we have a new life that starts right now that will go on for eternity with the Father in heaven. The message of Christ. We evangelize in our church all the time to believers and non-believers because we share all the time the good news of Jesus Christ that every staff meeting, every prayer meeting, every church service goes back to that one key point. But one of the practices of evangelism Orthodoxy, one of the practices, orthopraxy, of evangelism, historically has been tent crusade meetings. You know the ones, Reinhard Bonnke, 
um, Billy Graham, amazing crusades. I think about crusades all over the world that started the Pentecostal church movement, charismatic movement. And many of us, though, as a result of those meetings, equate evangelism to those large gatherings. We've confused the message with the practice, the orthodox with the orthopraxy. But evangelism is significantly more, isn't it, than these vast and large gatherings. Because if evangelism is those, then I've never evangelized in my life because I've never run one. I haven't often taken people to those. We don't run those as a church. Since I've been in Ottawa, I haven't seen one. Is, are Christians in Ottawa not evangelizing to their friends? Of course they are. Evangelism is a much broader umbrella, but we get it confused, the message and the practice. And Jesus says, Israel, I'm cursing this fig tree as a symbol to say, you have the practices, but you've lost the message. The tree paraded fruit on the outside. It paraded leaves on the outside, but that same tree was barren on the inside. There are a necessity that there is a necessity, excuse me, of authenticity from God. There was also an ache for authenticity from our generation, from our friends and family, a generation that wants to look beyond filters on social media and doctored photos. They want to look beyond me presenting the best of myself at all times. They want to look beyond a life that looks like it has no problems. There's a generation looking for sincerity, truth, and authenticity. And that's what I believe was happening when Jesus cursed this tree. Jesus' example in the fig tree is this. Israel, you are barren, but you're pretending to be fruitful. Your facade has become spiritual acts to hide the darker truth on the inside. And this is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. In short, Friends, don't let spiritual practices get in the way of the Holy Spirit. Don't let words get in the way of your prayers. Don't let church get in the way of your relationship with God. Matthew chapter 6 in the message says this, 2 through 4 and then 5 and 6. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. Eugene Peterson writes here as he translates the Bible for us. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, I call them. Treating prayer meetings and street corners alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching. Playing to the crowds, they get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks, just do it quietly and unobtrusively. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for 15 minutes of fame. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I would do. Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense His grace. In this translation of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking about our motivations. He's encouraging us to search our subtle motives in our heart for anything that we do. Particularly here, the examples are serving people and praying. In the world of spiritual practices, the motive is more important than the behavior. When we serve people, the motive is just as crucial as actually serving the people. When we pray, the motive for prayer is just as important as the prayer itself. Do them both, the Bible says here, privately and quietly. In closing, this is really good news for us. The message again says in verse 6, Find a quiet, secluded place so that you won't be tempted to role play before God. 
Jesus is letting us know that he is not interested in role-playing. He is not interested in theater. He is not interested in playing games. There is a necessity of authenticity from God, and there is an ache of authenticity from our generation. That we are called to follow God, not at a distance, not playing games. But your true self, who you really are on your good days, your bad days, and your worst days, to come before God and be open and honest, sincere and authentic to Him. And that is how we start a relationship with Jesus, and that's how we keep one going. And so if you're here today, and you're saying, Levi, that's me. I don't know Jesus. I'm not walking with Him. I'm not right with God. Then I would love to partner with you, to partner with God, to see the beginning of your authentic and sincere relationship with God. Start today. Let's take a lesson from this fig tree. Let's take a lesson from what He was trying to say symbolically to the nation of Israel at that time. And let's be people today that are up front with God. No theater, no games, no role play. And so friend, if that's you, I'd love to pray with you today. Can we pray this very simple prayer? It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you. I need you in my life. I ask you, forgive me of my sin. And I thank you that you do. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. Love you so much, church. We'll see you later.